Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number nine of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Larson, and with me all the way from California is... Cricket Lou. Nice to be here. Well, it's been a while since our last episode. We seem to be stretching them out a little bit. <laughs> Too long, but but summer schedules, I think, sometimes do that. You'd, you'd think it would be the opposite, that you'd have more free time uh, in the summer to do things like this, but I think it works out the other way. Yeah, we were just talking before we started recording about how busy our respective summers are. Frankly, I'm looking forward to Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I just wrapped up, I think, my fourth fourth or fifth straight week of travel um, on Friday last week. And you travel a lot, but that's a lot of travel even for you. Yeah, that was that was two trips to Europe in about a month, I think. Well, shall we shall we get right into it? We shall. I don't think people really are that interested in hearing no. how much we travel. Well, we got a what we both remarked was a great question from a guy named Scott McClanahan, mm-hmm. and uh, he just asked all kinds of really practical, interesting questions. And uh, we're going to devote most of this episode to plowing through his question. All right. So why don't I why don't I go here? Mm-hmm. He first he thanks us uh, and says he enjoys the podcast. So. We always appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Uh, and he has a bunch of questions about the zone apex and what, if any, guidelines apply to it. So maybe we should start off by saying what the zone apex is or what a zone apex is. Right, right. And if you think of a, a zone as a, a kind of a container in DNS that has a name associated with it, like, for example, nxdomain.com or uh, ask-mrdns.com, then it may contain a lot of a lot of domain names like www.ask-mrdns.com, but the zone apex is uh, the the same as the name of the zone, right? So for for askmrdns.com, it's ask-mrdns.com itself, the node that is at the top of that that zone. Yeah, I was just going to say it's at the top of the zone. That's mm-hmm. that's what it is. All right, so. Uh, his, his first question is, uh, more specifically, I often see NS, SOA, and MX records, but are all resource record types allowed? Right. And there's one in particular that we can definitely say is not allowed at the zone apex. Exactly. And I can only think of that one, but I'm sure now listeners will be screaming at the mp3 player because they can immediately think of other things but i i I can't right so you're of course talking about the cname record right and the cname record i guess the prohibition against the cname record at the zone apex is not direct it's sort of indirect right because uh, a given domain name can be either an alias or a canonical name but never both and because the zone apex has to own, for example, an SOA record and one or more NS records. Uh, therefore, it is a canonical name and cannot be an alias. Right. You know, maybe the way to approach this is to say what has to be at the zone apex. Right. Right. In order for it to be a zone at all. Right. And, and what, what there must be is uh, an SOA record mm-hmm. and uh, a set of NS records. Right. I, th- I think just one or more NS records in order to be legal, right? Syntactically legal. Right. Yeah. Right. And and that's what you must have there. But in terms of other things that uh, you often see, uh, certainly MX records, because if your 
domain is, let's say, nxdomain.com, you probably want to receive mail as, you know, user at nxdomain.com, like cricket at nxdomain.com. And so that would mean you would need an MX record to tell uh, mail transport agents where to send mail when the right side of the email address, that is, everything to the right of the at sign, uh, ends in nxdomain.com. A mail transport agent will look up nxdomain.com MX records, and that will tell it where to send mail addressed like that. Right. And, and likewise, if you want to be able to support URLs like http colon slash slash nxdomain.com, then you have to have an address record there as well, at least one address record. Right. So I would say what you probably see most commonly in practically every zone is uh, an SOA record, and there's always one and only one SOA record, uh, a set of NS records, uh, some MX records, and an A record. Right. Right. And so, I mean, sometimes you'll see a few other records. I suppose you might see a text record. Um, sure, for SPF or uh, DKIM. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But probably not a whole lot more than that, except in very special circumstances. All right. Well, so then his next question, maybe we've already covered. Uh, he says, are there adopted best practices for what a zone apex should look like? And I think any any best practices would have to be based on what services that you, you wanted to support, right? I, you know, you, you couldn't just say, these are the best practices, because if you, for example, weren't running email, then it wouldn't be a best practice to have MX records at your zone apex. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and then if you are doing DNSSEC, um, you would have additional material there, although he asks about DNSSEC in a, in a moment, so maybe we can hold off on that. Okay. Um, boy, I'm just trying to think of... Uh, think of anything else that would apply here well there you know there are dname records which you might sometimes see that's sort of exotic uh that you would find a dname record at the zone apex which basically would be used to sort of rename uh domain names in one uh zone into another zone or into totally different domain names right right um i I can't think of ever having even seen a dname in the wild <laughs> we we actually support dname records and in, in uh, uh, infoblox products but I, I can't say that our customers use them too often all right so now the next part of scott's question is dnssec and it, it seems we cannot have an ask mr dns podcast episode <laughs> without discussing dnssec right and indeed so he says can you explain how the dnssec records alter a zone's apex uh if they do Yes, we can, but we won't. That's going to make this a quick episode. I think we better explain. <laughs> All right. So uh, do you want to you go ahead and, and talk about what usually appears at the, the zone apex in a uh, zone that's been signed using DNSSEC? Sure. The most important thing is what we call the key set. And the key set is just the set of all DNS key records for the zone. And... There don't have to be two different kinds of DNS keys for a zone, but there usually are, well, mm -hmm. to the extent that there are any best practices for DNSSEC because it's so new and there's so little deployment. But certainly the way the standards are written and the way operationally people are thinking about it is that there will be two kinds of keys. Um, there'll be what's called the key signing key for your zone and the zone signing key. So there'll be uh, at least one of each, and there can be more, and we can talk about those circumstances in a moment. 
but let's talk about what the uh, what the roles of these two keys are. Uh, so the the key signing key is the key that, as its name would imply, signs only this set of DNS keys that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then the zone signing key signs everything else in the zone. And this is important when it comes to constructing a chain of trust, which is a both a general cryptographic term and a specific DNSSEC term. When a DNSSEC validator is trying to determine if a piece of data is valid, it has to start with a, a known public key that it trusts. That's something called a trust anchor. And then it tries to build a chain of trust from that known trusted key all the way to the piece of data it's trying to verify. And that chain of trust consists of, uh, well, DS records and key signing keys and zone signing keys. So this is this is quickly going to get to be a uh, uh, sort of an in-depth answer. Do you, do you want to take it from here just because I'm doing all, all this talking? <laughs> you're doing just fine. And you're the one who, uh, who worked on the RFCs, not me. All right. Well, I, I can keep going if you want. Well, I guess the one thing that I, I would point out that I think we, we glossed over, and maybe this is something that is uh, apparent to everybody, but the, the, these DNS key records hold the public key of a key pair. So we're talking about a key set, which is different from a key pair, generally with any zone. If you're adhering to, to DNSSEC best practices, you have two pairs of keys, two uh, public and private key pairs. And so the DNS key records hold the public key halves of those. There are, in fact, private keys as well, but they're not published in DNS. Right there, as the name would imply, they're kept private because that's what you use to do your zone signing, right? So that's a very good point, that the DNS key record only publishes the public portion of a key pair. Right. And it's the private key that you actually use to do the signing. It's the public key that you use to do the validation of stuff that was signed using the corresponding private key. Well, since I was on a roll, I can let me keep talking about the uh, chain of trust. Yeah, go ahead. So you have these two keys for a zone. And the key signing key's purpose is you send that to your parent zone because the chain of trust in DNSSEC always follows the path of delegation. So it might go, for example, from the root zone to the .com zone to the nxdomain.com zone. Uh, just as that's how that zone is delegated from root to .com to nxdomain.com. Likewise, building a chain of trust, it goes in the same path. So only the root zone can vouch for the key of .com, and only the .com zone can vouch for the key of nxdomain.com. And the way this linkage between a parent zone and a child zone works is by the DS record. So bear with me here. What happens is a child zone like nxdomain.com has this key signing key, and it sends the key signing key to its parent zone, in this case .com, and that .com zone takes a hash, a cryptographic hash of that key, like MD5 or SHA-1 or SHA-256, and the hash is what goes in the DS record, and then that DS record gets signed. And this is a very common thing in... Uh, public key cryptography, when you have something to sign, you don't sign the entire thing. Like if you want to sign an entire email message, you don't sign that. You would sign, you take a, a cryptographic hash, you'd run the email through a cryptographic hash algorithm, and then the hash is always a small uh, fixed-sized output, 
and then the hash is what you would digitally sign. And the idea is that the, the cryptographic hash is like a digital fingerprint, if you will, of the larger document, because only a given document is going to produce a given hash if it's a good cryptographic hash. Right, and the practical uh, importance of the hash is that it's much smaller than the source material it's based on. Right, you could have a pretty large uh, key, for example, even a DNS key, which related, you know, compared to, say, an entire email message, a DNS key is much smaller than an email message, but in DNS terms, it's a pretty big object, and a DS record with a hash in it is even smaller. Right. All right, so let's get back to our chain of trust here. So we've got this DS record in the .com zone now for nxdomain.com, and that DS record contains the hash of nxdomain's key signing key, and the .com zone signs it. So now that's the .com zone asserting, uh, putting its digital signature, if you will, on that, on that DS record. So if you trust the .com zone's key that it used to make that signature, well, now you trust that DS record, and that DS record is a hash of the NX domain's key signing key, so now you trust the nxdomain.com zone's key signing key. Well, what is that sign? So now that means you trust anything signed by the key signing key, and as I said a moment ago, the only thing signed by the key signing key is what we call the key set, which is the list of all the public keys for nxdomain.com, and that would include both the key signing key and the zone signing key. So now you trust all the keys because the key signing key signed the key set and you therefore trust all these keys because the, you trust the signature. And one of the keys in there is the zone signing key and the zone signing key signs everything else in the annexdomain.com zone. And therefore you trust everything else in the annexdomain.com zone. So that is how a chain of trust is formed, uh, or at least a portion of it. We've talked about you know, the, the DS record to the key signing key to the zone signing key. But what we haven't talked is the motivation for why we have this split in the first place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you want to talk about that? That was going to be my, my devil's advocate question is, well, why go to all this trouble and have these two separate key pairs for a single zone? Well, do you, are you asking me or do you want to? Well, I'm asking. That was, that was my question. role in, the, in all of this, was to ask okay. that question. <laughs> okay, well, then well, I will answer your question then. Well, if you think about it, changing the key signing key means interacting with your parent zone. So in this case, if we're talking about nxdomain.com, that means interacting with the .com zone and getting them to put a new DS record in place with a new cryptographic cache of your new key when you change your key. So if there were only one key, then every time you changed the key for your zone, you'd have to contact your parent. And so that that strongly couples then changing of your zone's key with interacting with your parent. And we realized as we were uh, designing DNSSEC, it took us a few times to, to get this right, but we realized that those things should not be coupled and that you might have a policy as a zone operator that you want to change your key or what we call in cryptographic terms, you want, would want to roll your key uh, very often. Let's say you'd want to roll it, I don't know, once a month. Do you really want to have to have some interaction with a registrar that gets a new key put in the .com zone 
you know, we're using .com as an example, but this would apply, you know, to whatever zone we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have that interaction with your parent, in this case, every month? Well, you don't have to because we split into key signing key and zone signing key. The idea is you can have your key signing key be a relatively long, long-lived key, and maybe it's a cryptographically stronger key. It's a, it's a longer key, and you set that up once with your parent, and you don't forget about it, but you might intend it to intend to leave it there for maybe a period of years if you're using a relatively long key. And meanwhile, then you can change that zone signing key as often as you want with no external dependencies on anybody and not needing to interact with anybody else. Right. And, and there's, a, there's a real practical motivation for this, too, which is that the frequency with which you're supposed to roll over keys has to do with how much material you've encrypted with those keys, right? And, and consequently, the, you know, any key that you use to sign zone data, if you have a large zone and you re-sign frequently, uh, you change data a lot, you're going to have to do a lot of signing. And so um, that, the, the key pair is going to be exposed to cryptanalysis. So you might have to, to rotate that pretty quickly. Um, on the other hand, you, you don't want to be in a position, as you explained, where you have to change, um, where you have to change keys with your, your parent very frequently. So we have this sort of intermediate key that uh, doesn't encrypt very much, right? It only has to encrypt the, uh, it, it only has to sign the zone signing key and add actually itself and any other keys that might be associated with the zone. So there's not that much encrypted material that it's produced. And so consequently, there's not the same kind of need to, to roll it over as frequently, right? Exactly. And we should point out, so this is getting way off into the cryptographic weeds, but the other threat when you publish a key, at least uh, if it's an, an RSA key, is that uh, when you expose the, uh, when you publish the, the public portion, uh, then anybody can begin a, a factoring attack on it. Right, right. And now, depending on whom you talk to, um, you know, there's some people getting increasingly nervous about 1,024-bit uh, RSA keys, uh, it, it's still, by the estimates I've seen, would take uh, like a nation state to attack your key. And even then, it, it's a, an extremely non-trivial amount of processing power to factor the public portion of an, an RSA key and effectively break the key. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains, uh, the, the thing that we also haven't talked about here is it really behooves you to use the smallest key that you can get away with because... Each it, all of the signatures get larger, at least with RSA. The, the the larger the key is that you're using, the larger the signatures are, mm -hmm. and that may not be an issue from a storage perspective for your zone, but it might be an issue from a bandwidth perspective, in that you're going to be generating larger responses. So you would want to have, for example, a, a relatively small zone signing key, the smallest you think you can get away with, so that the majority of your signed data, which is signed by that zone signing key, has comparatively smaller signatures on it. Now, you said a nation-state could conduct such a cryptanalysis attack, but I guess not a city-state, huh? So we don't have to worry about Singapore, for example, or Liechtenstein? Yeah, or, or Sparta. <laughs> All right. So have we covered it, then, the, I, the DNSSEC question? I think so. The, the only other thing uh, that I wanted to say, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to beat this to death, but we talked about the case where there is... Uh, a single key signing key and a single zone signing key, but it is possible that there can be more than one. And that you typically need to do that 
when you are in the process of rolling one of those keys. Right. You can't just have a flash cut and in one minute have the old key and in the next the next minute have the new key because of uh, the validity period of signatures. You know, you'd have data signed by the old key and those signatures could still be lying around and good. So you basically have to have some overlap where you have two keys active. Right, because you've always got a certain amount of... of uh, lack of coherence, I guess, lack of consistency in the system due to caching. So, you know, you, you, you could have, for example, cached signatures out there in the wild that people still need to validate uh, via a public key. And if you just remove that public key, then, you know, those signatures are now invalid. Right. And that's very bad from a DNSSEC perspective. The, the worst thing that can happen to your zone is if uh, a validator thinks your zone is called bogus. Mm-hmm. That's the actual state that's the actual word that we used in the in the RFCs. And if a validator thinks your zone is bogus, uh, your zone goes dark. It, it doesn't, yeah. the validator does not let data pass back from your zone because it determines there's some kind of an attack. So having a signature uh, expire, or in this case that you mentioned, having um, the signature still around, but the key not around in order to validate the signature, those are all very, very bad things because they just, your zone, your zone just drops off the air as if you shut off the radio. Right. It's worse than just having an unsigned zone, really. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess to sum up, I mean, since the question was, how does DNSSEC affect the records at the zone's apex, we should sum up and say, at the zone, zone's apex, in a signed zone, you would expect to find probably two or possibly more DNS key records. You would also find... Uh, an NSAC record, if you were if you were using NSAC, right? Um, well, that's true. That well, an NSAC or an NSAC three record, uh, that's definitely there as well. That's yeah. used for authenticated denial. And then there are a bunch of uh, signature records themselves. So, mm-hmm. so for every piece of data, for every type, I should say. Well, really, strictly speaking, for every resource record set at the apex, there's going to be an RR sig or a, a, a resource record signature. So you'll have an SOA record, and you'll have the RRSIG over the SOA. Mm-hmm. You'll have the NS resource record set and an RRSIG over that, and so on. So there really is quite a lot of data at the zone apex as soon as you sign it. Right. You could easily end up having well over um, you know, a dozen resource records, uh, even, even more than that, if you count all of those. Um, you know, if you had the full complement of SOA, NS, MX, A records, and then, uh, you know, two DNS key records, um, you know, NSAC record and all the rest, all the signatures. Right. And in fact, it starts to get so large that you have to worry about uh, MTU, uh, maximum transmission unit issues, if you're going to be having a, a response that's so large that it's maybe going to have to get fragmented or you can't pass through uh I mean, th- this is an issue that actually is an active, uh, an active area of discussion right now in some of the DNS forums, uh, where people are realizing that as DNSSEC is going to make responses much larger, that there are potentially pieces of DNS infrastructure that are not going to be happy about that and and not let those pass those packets pass. Right. In fact, that's the last part of Scott's question. He said, "Are there any gotchas for having a large number of records or many records in your zone's apex?" So. Yeah, in the event that the number of records is so large, and the records themselves, of course, are so large, that um, a single response, the response to a single query uh, about your zone apex could exceed the 
you know, maximum size of a DNS message carried over UDP, which is 4K, then, then you have to worry because you're going to start truncating responses. Right, def definitely 4K or um, even w there can be more subtle problems too, which would be uh, what if someone advertises uh, a smaller UDP buffer size in eDNS0? So that is, they say, all right, I can accept uh, DNS messages as large as, uh, well, you're supposed to be able to accept, I think it's 1220 bytes is the, uh, according to RFC 3226, is the what you're supposed to be able to accept for DNSSEC. Mm -hmm. So what if you say, well, that's the largest I can accept. And so uh, an authoritative name server responding says, well, okay, I can fit my response in that. But then what if there's something in the middle that doesn't let that response get through? So some sort of O opaque, okay, opaque box in there that 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 sees that and goes. Well, wait a minute, I'm I'm not letting that through because maybe it's really, really larger than an MTU and it can't fragment. Or, uh, well, there are any number of things that can that can go wrong. So I, I think we're going to see some really tricky to debug problems as DNS responses get uh, larger than they have historically been, and especially as they're larger than the Ethernet MTU, since that's sort of, I think, where there's an important boundary. Right, right. And that's where we're going to start to see fragmentation, and we'll probably start to see, you know, consequent uh, degradation of performance because of that fragmentation, right? Right. And I, I just learned something interesting um, on, well, I'm on so many DNS mailing lists, I can't remember which one it is, but um, you can actually, on Linux, you can say that you uh, well, it's okay. Let's see. I'm gonna. I, I have to avoid listeners screaming at the uh, at the MP3 player here. I, <laughs> I guess uh, on UDP, you often set the don't fragment bit under the um, assumption that uh, if the packet goes out and is you know larger than the MTU, and so this would be part of path MTU discovery. And you get that ICMP message back that says, oh, hey, I, I can't take a packet that big. Uh, most UDP applications, you know, they can't sensibly deal with that. They're not written t to understand, well, you know, I, uh, I, I can't send that packet. Whereas TCP, uh, it, it just changes the window size. But I, I recently learned that, uh, that Bind actually on Linux uh, sets or excuse me, it clears the don't fragment bit. So it, it behaves differently in that it, it goes ahead and allows fragmentation to happen. This hmm. is perhaps, uh, we're really off it. We've, we've, we've kind of gone off in the cryptographic weeds and now we're <laughs> off in the, uh, the TCP IP weeds here. Our, our longtime listeners will not be surprised by this. No, they, they will not. All right, well, I, I think we've, uh, we've come close to beating this question to death, which also will not surprise our long-term listeners. Right, right. The only, the only other sort of sub-question that Scott has that I think we basically uh, addressed was, does Bind have any unexpected restrictions for what is acceptable in a zone's apex? What about resolvers? And here I think Bind hues very close to the, the RFCs and allows everything that, uh, that you might possibly uh, want to, to put in a zone's apex, except for the, the I'm sorry, except for the CNAME record, which is of course not allowed. Yeah. Do you know if there are any um, requirements? Like, does it have to be 
at the beginning of the file? Do I kind of remember that from a long time ago? It used to be the case. I, it's not anymore. Um, it used to be the case that uh, it had to be at the beginning of the file. There were bugs where it couldn't be included from another file and things like that. But I believe all of that has been resolved. All right. Well, what do you think? Well, we were going to answer one more question, if I remember correctly, weren't we? Yes. I just wondered if we want to declare victory or at least uh, <laughs> cry put over ahead on Scott's question. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I think we've done okay by Scott. I hope so anyway. I hope so. All right. Well, so what was the other question? Well, the other question came in from Duncan Hart, and this is actually not a DNS question at all, but it's one that uh, we can easily answer in the few minutes we have remaining. Uh, he says, what podcasting equipment do you guys use? He says, keep up the great work. I really enjoy your shows. So thanks very much, Duncan. Um, so should we, we go ahead and, and answer that as the, the last part of the podcast today? Yeah, sure. Why don't, why don't you go? Well, um, I have to say I have what I believe is, is the uh, distinctly less impressive setup. <laughs> um, I, I use um, my trusty MacBook, um, and I run GarageBand on that in order to do the recording of my half of the podcast. Um, and Matt and I both use Skype um, to talk to each other, and then each of us records uh, our half of the podcast, and then some one of us, some unlucky one of us, gets to <laughs> st stitch it together again. Um, and then uh, for uh, for the mic, I have, uh, as of fairly recently, a, uh, a Samson uh, C01U USB mic, uh, which so far has served me very well, and uh, a pair of uh, Grado headphones that uh, I invested in not too long ago which I think Matt will agree are a big improvement <laughs> over what I used before. Yeah, yeah, you had you had the microphone from hell there that uh, you had some issue where there was a hum in the background. If you, well, you had to touch your MacBook, right? Oh, yeah, it was a combination of things. It was that where I had to sort of ground myself while I was recording, or, was that, or, or there was that hum that would get picked up. And also, um, the it, there wasn't enough insulation so that... W Almost inevitably, the mic, it was a, one of these combined, uh, he, you know, headset mic things from Logitech. The mic would pick up the audio, f the audio that I was hearing in the, the headphones. Uh, and so then we'd always have to edit that out at the end. Right. So that was not, none too pleasant a task. Well, so what I about have, you? Yeah, well, I, I have... Um, when we started doing this and we started with those, uh, we both bought the same Logitech uh, headset and mic combination. And I think we quickly realized comparing how we sounded with other podcasts that we needed to do something better. And so I was all gearing up to buy a, a microphone, a pretty good microphone. And then I realized, wait a minute, I, I have two good microphones already because I, uh, from years ago, I had, uh, I actually have a DAT recorder and two relatively decent microphones that I use to record music on occasion. And uh, I had, after the DAT recorder, uh, I bought this box that, um, it's really a slick thing. It's made by a company called, I don't know how you say it, Alessis, A-L-E-S-I-S. It's called an IO2, but it's lowercase i, lowercase o, a vertical bar, and the digit two. Hmm. Anyway, that's what it's called. 
And it, this slick little box takes um, input for two, so a left and right channel, uh, either balanced microphones. And, and now I, I don't know much about audio recording, but these are the, the, the plugs that you see that have the little, um, the three little prongs, and you see them on like professional PA systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll take balanced mic uh, input. It'll take, take other inputs. Uh, and then it just outputs that as USB. So it looks to your, uh, to your computer like just any old USB microphone. And so these, these two decent mics that I have are, are balanced microphones. And so I just, I just take one of them and I plug it into this, uh, this IO2 box and that goes via USB into my Mac and uh, I record and away we go. All right. And you use uh, you you haven't been using GarageBand, right? You've been using something else, I think. Yeah, I've been using Audacity for no real good reason. Um, I don't know. It works for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. All right. Well, I guess that's it, isn't it? Yeah. So I we we thought we uh, we thought we might have to stretch that question out and not have enough material, but once again, <laughs> our, our capacity to talk at length has been borne out. That's right. That's right. We have we have expanded to to uh, to uh, use all available space. Okay. Well, hey, um, I guess we probably won't be talking for a little while, at least because of uh, because of your upcoming vacation. So have a great vacation. Well, thank you very much. And think shall I go ahead? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, think of me as I drive sixteen hundred miles with two small children. <laughs> yes. There, but for the grace of God, go I, right? All right, shall I take us out? Sounds good. All right. Well, as always, thank you very much for tuning in to the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Um, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is Mr. DNS, which is mrdns at ask-mrdns.com. Please feel free to send your questions and comments there. Um, we'll try to be back with you again, uh, hopefully within the next 30 days or so with uh, another podcast. And uh, until then, take care. Bye-bye.